Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. If you're venturing into flower and vegetable seed starting in 2021, well, good for you. It's fun, and with seeds, there are plenty more varieties to choose from. And you might have some leftover seeds hanging around, but will those old seeds germinate? Our favorite retired college horticultural professor, Debbie Flower, has a surefire way to tell. Are you familiar with the pluot? It's a fruit. It's a cross between a plum and an apricot. And it truly is one of the sweetest treats that you can grow in your yard. If you've got a sweet tooth, you'll want to grow the pluot. We'll tell you all about the pluot today. A lot of gardeners like to grow flowers among their vegetables, and that's a great idea. But if you grow tomatoes, there's one very alluring flower that you definitely do not want to grow anywhere near your tomatoes. What is that flower? You're going to find out here on Episode 70 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, and we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. We like to answer your garden questions here on the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. Details on how you can chime in, you can find in the show notes. We're talking to our favorite retired college horticultural professor, Debbie Flower. And Debbie, this question comes in, and I bet uh, this question is on the minds of a lot of gardeners, both new gardeners and old gardeners, who, and in this case, uh, Cheryl writes in and says, I still have half a packet of tomato seeds left from last year. Are they are they still good? Well, I guess uh, we can go with our standard answer. It depends. Right, right. It depends. What we need to know, seeds can last several years. Typically, I maybe will keep them for two years. But the critical thing is how they were stored in, in that time that you're saving them. They need to be kept dry and cool. And the smaller the seed, the shorter life it has, the less uh, chance that it's going to survive for this year. And so uh, if she wants to check it, to see if it's going to germinate, the easiest thing to do is take five or ten seeds. Hold on, I'm going to sneeze. Okay. Come on, come on. <laughs> now, of course, it's not going to come. <laughs> well, it will in mid-sentence. Right. She wants to check her uh, seeds to find out if they're going to germinate. The easiest thing to do is to take a paper towel or a coffee filter, but I use a paper towel, fold it in half. And then open it up again and take, I like to do 10 seeds because then the math is easy. Uh, typically, there are lots of seeds in a seed packet. So 10 is, is a, a, you're not going to run out of seeds by using 10, but you could do five. The math is just a little harder. Put them in right in that fold. Separate them by a couple of inches. Then fold the paper towel back over them and then roll it up in the other direction like a cigar so that the seeds are all in the fold and they are all at the one end of the cigar and then dampen the whole thing. And then I like to stand it up in a jar or a, a coffee cup, glass, something like that, and put a paper, put a plastic bag over the top so it stays moist. And I look at the package, how many days until germination? Tomatoes, probably seven to 14. Uh, and so I would check it in a week by taking off the plastic bag, taking out the paper towel, unrolling the cigar, opening the fold, and see how many have germinated. That will give you an idea of how many will germinate in the ground. If half of them have germ germinated, then I might want to double seed, uh, put two seeds wherever I would 
start one and then hopefully I'll get one to germinate. If none have germinated after seven days, I'd fold the thing back up again, roll it up like a cigar again, put it in the jar again, cover it with the plastic again, leave it another week and check it again. If none germinate, then then probably the seeds aren't very good. I wouldn't trust them and I would buy new. Inquiring minds want to know, why stand it up? Why can't you just lay it flat, that uh, wet uh, paper towel? Uh, because it's easier to see where which seeds have roots. If you lay it flat, roots try to roots uh, grow towards gravity, and so if you lay it flat, the roots will just grow wide all over the other seeds, and it's difficult to tell from which seed the root has arisen. If you stand it up in the cup, then the roots grow down, and when you open it up, you'll be able to see which ones have germinated and which ones have not. There are some downsides to doing this test in January for tomato seeds. I'll explain that in a second. But let's say you're doing this test in February or March. Could you take those seeds that have germinated and then put them in some sort of seed-starting mix? Yes, you could. Uh, and that's why I mentioned a, a coffee filter instead of a paper towel. The downside of a paper towel is that it has uh, fibers and the roots can become entwined in the fibers. And so if I did this experiment with a paper towel, I would cut the paper towel around the seed and plant the whole thing, paper towel and all, because I, the root hairs tend to get into the paper towel. If you do it on a coffee filter, they're less likely to do that. But coffee filters don't give you as much space as a paper towel does to do this test. And why use a seed starting mix instead of just backyard soil? Seeds are small. If we're growing in a container, backyard soil is too holds too much water to be in a container. It's very tight in its texture and water stays in the soil on the surfaces of all the particles. And if the particles are very close together, which is what I mean by tight, then this, the water fills all the pores between the uh, soil particles and there's no place for oxygen and roots do need oxygen to grow. So a seed starting mix is uh, more open. It ha actually has bigger particle sizes or it, there's lots of different field soil. And some of the reason field soil can be tight is because the particle sizes are of all different sizes. And so the little ones fit in between the big ones. The seed starting mix that you purchase is of all one size. And so they're all big. And so when think of a jar full of golf balls and how there would be spaces between them. But if you added pennies to the golf ball jar, all the spaces would be filled with pennies. So the golf ball and the pennies is this field soil. The golf ball alone is the seed starting mix. Seeds are small and the little plants that come out of them, seeds contain a, a completely formed little plant. The little plants that come out of them aren't very strong. And so the particle sizes need to be very lightweight so that the little plant that comes out of the seed can push the particles out of the way. Field soil tends to be heavier, can have rocks in it. Other kinds of potting material that you would buy in a bag to grow things in containers can have particle sizes that are too large and baby plants can't push their way out. And if they can't push their way out, they can't get bigger. So we use seed starting mix for those reasons. Ah, yes, that mysterious big wall of soil that you'll find at a garden center or big box store, potting mix, planting mix, outdoor mix, container mix. And somewhere there you will find small, usually small bags 
of seed starting mix. Right. And I guess that's fine if you're only starting a few, but if you're starting a lot, you may want to economize by perhaps making your own seed starting mix. That's true. That's very true. And so for that, we uh, I typically use peat moss, perlite, and vermiculite in a one-to-one-to-one mix, meaning if I have one, I'll use an empty, a clean, empty container, maybe a four inch, maybe a gallon, depends how much material I'm trying to make. And so one part means one container full of peat moss. Another part means one container full of perlite. And another part means one container full of vermiculite. Then you need to add a little bit of lime to that because peat moss is very acidic. Uh, If you don't want to use peat moss, you could use sand. That would be for very well-drained things. Native California drought-tolerant plants, cactus, uh, things that like drought. You could use coir, and apparently it comes in pellets. I have not used the pellets, but the pellets, uh, they need to be soaked, but they work better than the big blocks that are all compressed because the big blocks have to be soaked before you use them. But coir is coconut fiber. You could use compost. There, any sort of organic material that is clean and seed free can be used to as the instead of peat moss. And if you do use coir, the benefit to that is it has more of a neutral pH, uh, unlike uh, peat moss, which is very acidic. So you wouldn't need the lime in that case. Yes. And the math to calculate how much lime you need is not easy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So all of a sudden, that bag of seed starting mix looks better and better. It sure does. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But uh, it, it's amazing uh, what you can do on a big scale, though, if you just got, in, in my case, I would use peat moss, I would use compost. And I would use perlite. Now, I know you're not a big fan of perlite, but you have a substitute for the perlite. I would use the perlite in seed starting because it is lightweight. And I'm not a fan of it because of the amount of dust it creates. It creates dust whenever you're using it. So when you open the bag, there's a puff of dust in your face. And then when you dig into the bag to get some out, there's dust. And when you pour it, there's dust. And when you mix it with the other stuff, there's dust. So the number one thing to do when you're working with perlite is wet it. Open the bag with the scissors rather than pulling it apart somehow because the scissors uh, are calmer in in cutting the bag. You create less dust that way. Take the hose and put it right in the bag and wet the... Wet the perlite. Hmm. Then, of course, we all have masks these days. Wearing a mask is a good idea. When I'm potting on up, once the seed has germinated and I have a small plant with a root system, then I will switch to pumice. Uh, Pumice is uh, created by volcanoes. And it comes in different sizes. You can get small sizes that are, I haven't found one that's as small as regular horticultural perlite. I haven't had trouble with it uh, creating problems because it's a little bit bigger. So I will use that as the component in, in a container mix. One of the problems with perlite as well is as it goes on in the growing process of that new plant, it tends to float up to the surface. Well, it doesn't float to the surface, but everything else washes away. <laughs> okay. That's Technicality. <laughs> everything else goes down. Everything else goes down, yeah. All right. And I mean, is that just cosmetic, though? Yes, that is cosmetic. And if you don't want to use perlite, you could use pumice. You could replace perlite with sand in seed starting. It needs to be horticultural sand, which is also builder sand, which is washed and sized. Because sand typically comes from places that where uh, salt water has been. My, uh, I know you, you, know, you can drive around the U.S. and find uh, gravel pits and sand pits, mining pits all over the place, but they're in places where salt water used to be. And so the sand is full of salt. 
And so that salt needs to be washed out. Salt will kill a plant very, very quickly. It's It's got sodium in it and too much sodium will quickly kill a plant. So the sand you would use in place of perlite and seed starting mix needs to be washed and sized and builder sand is sufficient for that, that, that you can get at your big box store. You don't want to start tomato seeds in January because they're going to be ready to tr- transplant in probably eight weeks. And if you do that in January and think you're going to transplant in March, you just might be in for a rude surprise if the weather turns cold. So if you want to back time your tomato seed planting, subtract eight weeks. So if you normally plant in late April, you would want to plant those tomato seeds in late February. So I guess this little test your seed uh, experiment would work with just about any vegetable seed, wouldn't it? Yes. I used to do it with my students, a whole classroom. I kept old seeds, some of them decades old, uh, a bean in particular, an Anasazi bean that germinated every year, almost 100% for decades. So some seeds can be kept a long time and some seeds can't. But yeah, every every semester we did, I did that test with students. It was, uh, to me, a very wonderful way of testing your seeds. What is the best way to store seeds? I know you said in a cool, dry place. Is the refrigerator an option? Yes, the refrigerator is an option, and and that's where I keep my seeds. Most of them, not all of them, but just because I'm lazy, not because I have any (laughs) selection of ones that shouldn't go in the refrigerator. Uh, Refrigerators are typically around 42 degrees, and that's okay for all seeds. And how would you store them? Could you store them in their original uh, container that you purchased the seeds in? I always want to do that because there's so much great information on that seed packet. And I won't remember what they are if I take them out. And I collect those little dehydration packets that come in new things. I'm sure you've bought a new purse recently, right, Fred? And in the bottom of the purse is a packet that says, do not eat. Uh, and it's typically white with some writing on it, and you rub it around in your hands, and you can feel that there are, are round things inside. And that's uh, for uh, absorbing moisture. And I collect those, and I'll put those in with my seeds to keep them dry. And I can put them in a Ziploc bag, or a jar is even better. And then put them down in the, like the vegetable or the fruit crisper? I don't put them there, but anywhere oh. would work. The fruit crisper sometimes is controlled to be humid, And that's not what you want. You just want them to be cool and dry. So back in the jar, in the back of a shelf, or I even sometimes have them in the door. Is there any danger of losing the life out of those seeds if you store them in the refrigerator if there are apples in the same location? Apples give off ethylene, and ethylene is a ripening hormone. I don't think it would affect the seed. I would have to honestly look into that. But I would want my seed in a jar or in a plastic bag, and that should be enough to keep the ethylene away. So before you rush out to buy new seed, maybe gather up those packets that you've stored in a cool, dry location, test the seeds, and you just might have plenty for the upcoming growing season. Once again, we learn a lot with Debbie Flower. Debbie, thanks for a few minutes of your time. Always a pleasure, Fred. Thank you. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast has a lot of information posted at each episode. Transcripts, links to any products or books or websites mentioned during the show, and other helpful links for even more information. Plus, you can listen to just the portions of the show that interest you. It's been divided into easily accessible chapters. Plus, you'll find more information about how to get in touch with us. Maybe you could leave an audio question without making a phone call. You can do that at SpeakPipe. That's SpeakPipe.com. It's easy. Give it a try. And you just might hear your voice on the Garden Basics 
Politics podcast. If you're listening to us via Apple Podcasts, put your question in the ratings and reviews section. You can always text us the question and pictures or use your voice to leave a question at 916-292-8964. That's 916-292-8964. You can always use the good old email, fred at farmerfred.com. That's fred at farmerfred.com. And when you leave a question, be sure to tell us where you're from. That will help us greatly to accurately answer your garden questions, because as you know, all gardening is local. In the show notes, you'll find links to our social media outlets as well, where you can leave questions or make comments. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And there's a link to the FarmerFred.com website. And thanks for listening. We're talking with Phil Purcell from Dave Wilson Nursery. We're finding out about what's hitting the nursery shelves right now from uh, one of the nation's biggest fruit, nut, and vine suppliers to nurseries uh, throughout the United States. And uh, one of my favorite pieces of fruit is the pluot. Phil, what is a pluot? So a pluot is just a cross between a plum and an apricot. And with a pluot, the parentage is predominantly on the plum or pluot side that is crossed with an apricot. So think of a pluot, 75% or so a plum or, you know, plum parentage and about 25% is going to be apricot parentage. And the way you can do this is that since they're both in the same family, the pollen's interchangeable. That's why you can go ahead and cross an apricot and a plum, and you get what is known as a hybrid fruit. The thing about pluots is that through the development of these pluots, you get flavors that you just don't get from a traditional plum. They're sweeter, they're more adaptable. They're just really a plum that has, with just superior flavor, kind of hybridized into them. Uh, the pluots are incredibly sweet, and they're just so tasty. And I know at the uh, fruit tastings, that Dave Wilson has conducted over the years. Everybody loves when the pluots hit the table because uh, they know they're in for a real sweet taste treat. And uh, I see that uh, one of the favorite taste test results is also one of my favorites, the Flavor Supreme Pluot, which here in California usually ripens in late June, early July. And uh, wherever you live in the United States, it will grow. It just might uh, ripen up a little bit later in the year. Yes. I mean, that's... uh one of the old-time varieties that Floyd Zager developed, and it's still, flavor-wise, it is it just it is really hard to beat. The other taste test winners among the Pluots uh, include Flavor King and Dapple Dandy, uh, Emerald Drop, and uh, Flavor Grenade. And let, let's not forget about Flavor Queen. Right. So these are just different. You know, some of them are red skin, some of them are green skin, some of them yellow skin. A Pluot is varies in in appearances but like you say they're just different derivatives of plum and apricot crosses pluots are very, are known out here in, in the western u.s and in fact if you go into a grocery store especially in california they'll have a plum section they'll have a pluot section but a lot of people don't realize especially back east is that they're eating pluot because pretty much that's what the growers now grow but they just call them plums Mm. They just keep things simple. But here in California, where we know what a pluot is, there are so many different pluots available that I, when you go in the grocery store, pluots really do outnumber plums. Sometimes they just call them plums, but they're just 
different crosses because you get so much more flavor out of a pluot. So here is uh, my reaction to eat eating pluots from various sources. Go to a supermarket, buy a pluot, take a bite. You go, eh, that's pretty good. Go to a farmer's market, buy a pluot, take a bite. Hey, that's really good. Pick a pluot off a tree in your backyard. Take a bite out of it. The neighbors will hear you going, wow! It is just so wonderful when you grow your own fruit trees. It's just so tasty and so fresh. And you know exactly what went into making that tree, so you know it's good for you. Exactly. That, that, that is the benefit of growing fruit in your backyard. You know what has, you know, has or hasn't been sprayed on it. You can control the fertilizer, the water. It's just a nice gift after taking care of a tree the whole summer to, to, to get this, you know, wonderful fruit. And the, the thing about growing and eating fruit out of your own backyard is you can eat it early and the pull-out will be good. For example, that's what you get at a traditional grocery store. You can let it sit on the tree a little bit longer. You get more of what you would expect from a farmer's market. But when you let that tree or the fruit just hang on that tree and keep on developing the sugars during the, the, the summer, that's when you get that explosive flavor that, that you just don't get from a store-bought pull-out. A little bit earlier, we talked about the benefits of backyard orchard culture where you maintain the size of the tree at no more than you can reach. So six feet, six and a half, seven feet tall. Another good reason to maintain your trees at that height is you can keep the birds off the fruit by easily putting a net over that tree. Correct. It's uh, if you if you have a 12 foot, 15 foot fruit tree, there's no way you can net that. You can't keep the squirrels away. You can't keep the birds away. However, if you have something that is manageable, now you're more apt to go ahead and net that, you know, keep the critters from getting the fruit one week before you're ready to get it. Are there examples of, of uh, netting strategies in video form at DaveWilson.com? Yeah, we do have a couple of, uh, of videos that kind of show how, how to go ahead and, and net your trees. It can be a little difficult at first. The main thing is, that a lot of people don't do is they'll net the tree, but they don't enclose the bottom. Mm-hmm. So that still allows, you know, the squirrels and even the birds to go ahead and get into the canopy of the tree. So you really want to go ahead and within the netting, make sure that you enclose the bottom so that you seal it off. There you go. Now, pluots you mentioned are a plum apricot cross. Apriums are primarily apricot with a, a plum background. And then there's some other interesting crosses with odd names, like the Pluary. So the Pluary is kind of the newest of the the Zager hybrids. And it's actually a plum cherry cross. And you're starting to see it more and more in traditional grocery stores. It was only available up to the last few years in farmer's market and in the, uh, the home garden. And if you think of... A pluot being sweet, the pluaries are just unbelievable because they have the, the sweetness of the cherry that is hybridized into the plum. So think of a pluary as a big cherry, but really more of a smaller plum. And they are prolific. I have a sweet treat pluary in my backyard that gives unbelievable fruit and it hangs for about four to six weeks. Hmm. And it's it has so much fruit on it, it it's unbelievable. 
And we have different varieties of blueberries that uh, are really nice because they're not too big, you know, and they make nice snack size. And you can have one or two or three without, uh, you know, overdoing it. But it's just something that the hang time of a fluary on a tree where you don't get it harvest all at once is a huge benefit for for the backyard gardener. One thing we should mention is that for these uh, pluots and pluaries that we're talking about in the apriums, it takes two to tango, really, in that you need two different varieties there for uh, best pollination, don't you? Yes. If if there's, I wouldn't even call it a drawback, but with pluaries and uh, with pluots, you do need to have cross-pollinizers, two different varieties. And it can also be a Japanese plum used as a pollinizer, but those definitely need it. Apriums, I would say most of them are self-fertile. So, you, you know, you don't have to have it, but having another apricot doesn't hurt. But if you're going to have a pluot or pluary, make sure you have another variety that blooms in sequence with it. And like I say, it could be another pluary with a, a, a pluot. It could be a plum with a pluot. It's just that you want to make sure they're blooming at the same time. And if you go onto our website, we give you cross-pollinized varieties so that you make sure that you have the uh, the right type of uh, pollinizer available. But you can, at the same time, everything's about successive ripening. So because it blooms at the same time doesn't mean that it's going to harvest at the same time. So you can kind of cross-reference our uh, harvest chart and figure out when you want to have your pluot. And then, you know, just pick two different ones. Odds are they're going to cross-pollinize each other. If you want a good encyclopedia of growing fruit trees, I would direct you to DaveWilson.com, their website. Not only is there a lot of written information there, but their series of videos, they call them the fruit tube videos, can take you from planting to harvest and uh, and caring for the tree uh, throughout the growing season. It's also available on YouTube as well, but uh, visit DaveWilson.com for a whole host of, of very good, accurate information about growing uh, fruit, vines, and nuts, uh, no matter where you live, wherever uh, Dave Wilson product can be found, which is most of the United States. Phil Purcell, we learned a lot today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Here's a quick tip for you. You've heard of companion planting, correct? Companion plants, two plants planted side by side that basically help each other out. Well, there's certain plants that you could call uncompanion plants, two plants that you may not want to put next to each other. Recently, I chatted with Warren Roberts, the superintendent emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum, and he was uh, waxing rhapsodic about a particular plant that's a really nice show for the nose, and it's very aromatic at night. It's called flowering tobacco. The botanical name is Nicotiana. But after Warren was talking about the insects that the Nicotiana attracts, uh, listen to this. You might not uh, want to plant this anywhere near your tomato plants. Nicosiana sylvestris is a native of southern Brazil in that area with very long white flowers. Uh, Daisy Ma gave us our original start, and it seeds around in the garden, never weedy, and always beautiful. It gets about oh, four or five feet tall in time, and then it has these very long tubular flowers which are fragrant. It's pollinated by sphinx moths. You know, when you're growing tomatoes and you have the hornworms, Big, uh, <laughs> big bright green worms. Uh, those are actually the larvae of the sphinx moth. 
So don't squash all of them. Leave some of them to to uh, produce these magnificent uh, moths, which look like uh, hummingbirds in the evening. Or the reason that we have these wonderful fragrant flowers because they they follow that fragrance uh, as a uh, as an indicator of nectar. Note to self: Don't plant Nicotiana anywhere near where you want to plant tomatoes. Okay, got it. Oh. <laughs> I suppose, yes. <laughs> yes, they're in the same family, too, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> Both Nicotiana and tomatoes are in the Solanaceae family. Nicotiana can be grown in all zones. Full sun or part shade needs regular water. Now, besides the sphinx moth, Nicotiana does attract hummingbirds and butterflies. Remember, though, that all parts of Nicotiana are extremely poisonous if ingested. It is a tender perennial but if you don't live in a mild winter area, it will probably just survive as an annual. And a word of warning, some Nicotianas reseed readily, which can either be a good thing or a bad thing. The Garden Basics podcast is going to a winter schedule, maybe just like your favorite local nursery. November through January, Garden Basics will come out once a week on Fridays. Then, as the weather warms back up in February, we'll return to our twice-a-week schedule. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate that you've included us in your garden life.